This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, how's it going? Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agricultural recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in ag tech or agribusiness, I'd love an email from you, tim at aggrad.com. Well, I've been feeling especially fortunate to do this show here lately. Just the chance to not only talk to the leading, I guess you can call them thought leaders and innovators and thinkers in this industry about sort of high level, how should we be looking at the future of agriculture, but all the way to, you know, the doers, the gritty entrepreneurs that are out there rolling up their sleeves and getting after it and getting things done. We certainly have all of that and more everywhere in between, really, on today's episode in both our main guest and our five-minute farmer that a mini segment that debuted last week with Gavin Spoor and this week you'll hear with Hannah Esch of Oak Barn Beef. But our guest today is Renee Vassalos. Renee is an agricultural economist and the founder of the Banyan Innovation Group. That's a consulting firm that works with growth stage ag tech companies, primarily with business development, but really they help solve problems all the way from pitch deck to distribution strategy. They help with things like finding strategic and tactical customers to gain traction to product management. And then on the other side, they also help investors. So they do due diligence for investors looking to enter into this ag tech space that's so hot right now, and also working with industry agribusiness incumbents that may be wondering how they should be approaching innovation for their own businesses. I loved this interview. I know I said that every week, but really this one is has been a chance for me to ask a lot of the hard questions that have been just sort of mulling over in my mind lately about ag tech and about where we're at in sort of the ag innovation space today. So I pulled no punches and Renee was up for the challenge. I really felt like we got to a lot of valuable information in this interview on everything from do we have a customer adoption problem in ag tech to how should we be thinking about regenerative agriculture uh, to how should we be approaching alternative proteins? I mean, that's a that's a wide range, and, and I think you're going to love it. Anyway, here is my interview with Renee Vassalos. She's going to start off by talking about her fascinating background with John Deere and with the U.S. government abroad. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I had a, a bit of an unusual career path with John Deere. I was actually working at the embassy in Beijing for the USDA as an agricultural specialist, and John Deere hired me in China. So I started with John Deere based in Beijing and looking at what the R&D or equipment opportunities were to serve the Chinese market as it continued to mature and mechanize. Then I moved on to own China, Southeast Asia, India with a similar mandate around kind of uh, strategy, thinking through equipment strategy. And then I owned cotton and sugar globally for, for deer, again, from a strategy mandate. So from a five and a 10 year perspective, what kind of equipment do we have to get in the pipeline to serve both the very mechanized markets of say, Brazil and US and Australia, but then also the unmechanized markets of China and India. It was a fascinating job. And then I owned a couple of cotton picker programs for John Deere from conception through to production 
one of those passed the test. So it went beyond the first initial year of R&D. And we did some test production in one of the factories in southern China, Ningbo. That was for a one-row tractor-mounted cotton picker for the unmechanized areas of China and India. And then I came back to the U.S. Deere said, well, maybe it's time you came back to the U.S. And I worked on the sales and marketing side for John Deere, initially based in Olathe, Kansas, which is the sales and marketing headquarters and covering Western geography. And then the last role I had, I owned the New England geography as a territory sales manager. Wow. And, and I'm, I'm really curious about your time in, in Asia, because from what I from what I understand, you know, you got a lot of smallholder farmers. They're, they're looking for the technology. You know, is a company like a John Deere or equipment manufacturer or, or the, some of these uh, more recent ag tech companies, are they able to price technology in a, in a way that allows for adoption for, from smallholder farmers in a place like China or India? That is an excellent question. I would say that companies like John Deere will have a harder time pricing the technology because of their significant overheads. Where I actually see the opportunity to deliver technology for some of these smaller shareholder growers is in fact new entrants. So new players that are coming into the market that are less burdened by the significant overhead of some of the major, major equipment manufacturers. And then the same would hold true for some of the other technologies. It's, it's a very exciting time, actually. Very cool. And then now to what you're doing now, I'm really intrigued by the due diligence. So when, when a, a new entrant into agriculture wants to invest money, what, what are their big questions? Are they just, are, are they saying, hey, where, where do I invest? Or, hey, is this a good idea, Renee? Can you look at this? Or how does that work? So typically they'll bring a company to me that they've already, that they've, that they are potentially going to invest in. So they would have already identified the opportunity. And then they're asking me to kind of dig in with an agriculture, experienced agriculture lens to say, is this in fact a business that we should invest in? You know, do the numbers pass the sniff test kind of is a very broad way of suggesting it. But when you are talking about early stage companies, that's, that is kind of what it is, right? A lot of the numbers are definitely in the project they're just projections um, and so mm-hmm. you have to kind of dig in and understand are they within the realm of possibilities and have they accounted for you know various factors within the industry another very important piece that sometimes gets forgotten is actually qualitative so it's a lot of talking if if a company is at the stage where where they actually have customers already it's talking to the customers and asking, you know, what are their thoughts about the solution? If they're earlier stage where they don't even yet have customers, it's my reaching out to my contacts that are potentially experts in the space to ask them their thoughts around the specific technology or reaching out to potential customers. So in theory, you know, when the, when the company is moving further along, who they would be targeting and then asking those folks kind of just generally, if this is technology they need, is it something that they're interested in? So yeah, those two components. So kind of looking at the numbers and making sure that they have in fact passed the realm of possibilities test and then doing qualitative assessment, which for the early stage tech, it's a really important component. 
Sure. Yeah, that's got to be really tricky because one, one thing we've talked about on this show in terms of customer adoption is th- there is a, a very, very small percentage of farmers that just can't wait to try out a new technology. They get excited about it. They're, you know, they're your, the pioneers of the technology. But then it gets, it, it seems to me at least, and, and you, you tell me, but it seems to get a lot more murky when you try to you know, extrapolate that among a, a, a larger percentage of the farmers, especially if you're talking technology sold to producers. How, how do you kind of tell like, hey, is this going to be able to sort of leap the chasm into into widespread customer adoption? Yeah, so that is, again, a great question. My frustration with this space is, frankly, I don't think we've been seeing enough technologies that are hitting the mark. So I'll use an example from my time at John Deere. When John Deere introduced the 7760, which is a cotton harvesting machine that bales the cotton into round bales in the unit. So before that, it was a much more complicated system. You harvested with a cotton picker, and then you had to transfer the cotton into this another piece of equipment that was a modular builder, and it was a rectangular, call it a bale. And when they introduced the 7760, it was so well-researched and absolutely hit the customer's needs. The adoption rate was extraordinary. And Deere very quickly owned, they, they already were at that stage, most likely had a majority share, but they just, and ever since have completely dominated the cotton picker market because they deliver the right solution. So when you get it right, farmers will adopt quickly. And so my sometimes pushback around some of that is that I just don't think that we've had solutions that have hit the mark. Right. I'm not trying to downplay it. It's, it's yeah. obviously very, very difficult to do. And I, I love that you were able to include that example. That's not one I was familiar with. So that's really, really cool to have that on on the show. But yeah, one thing that's been top of mind, mind lately is, you know, I, I think climate sold to Monsanto would have been 2013. So it's been maybe it was 2014. It's been five or six years or so. And so, you know, that kind of kicked off this boom in, in investment in ag tech or seems to in hindsight. And it, it just seems like we're not seeing a bunch of exits. And that has me wondering, you know, is that because we have a customer adoption problem? And and maybe, you know, what you really need for a successful exit is is traction when it comes to widespread customer adoption. You know, what are your thoughts on all that? Very interesting. I was visiting a venture capital group this morning, actually, and we were having exactly this conversation. I actually think the issues are, when you're looking at the space and looking at what the potential exits are, you are kind of assessing the sophistication of the industry as a whole, because who who's going to be actually doing the acquisitions, right? So in the climate example, of course, it was Monsanto. So what I actually see as the constraint here is the industry incumbents, that the industry incumbents have been very profitable for the last coming up on probably 10 years now, and they aren't yet investing in the innovation, which that's what would be driving a significant increase in exits. And so where I think what might lead to the tipping point is something that I'm starting to see is that we're seeing outside players coming into the space. Amazon Web Services has advertisements all over the place about their play around precision agriculture. You're seeing Microsoft talking about their interest in the agriculture space. I was at a conference for the National Institute for Animal Agriculture two or three weeks ago now in Des Moines, and IBM presented on their plays in the agriculture space. And so I think that we are going to start to see some interest from 
companies outside of agriculture, and that's going to push some pressure on industry incumbents to start paying attention and potentially making more of those acquisitions, which would drive up the exits. Right. And, and I guess there's no way to, I mean, I'm sure a, a privately held company, especially a startup is not going to share, you know, Hey, here's how many, here's our customer adoption rate. And, you know, here's our, I guess, net promoter score, unless maybe it's, it's extremely good, but I'm really looking forward to seeing some of these sort of acquisitions to kind of understand, you know, while I like to talk about all this stuff on the podcast every week, you know, how much of it's really being adopted by the farmer out there. And one thing I love doing about this podcast, I get to, I get to ask all these hard questions and not have to answer them, but you're doing great. So thank you very much for, for being willing to take all the field, all these difficult questions. Oh, no, I appreciate very much. This is your questions are very much in line with what folks are talking about in the industry. Yeah. I I was listening in to your, your VC meeting this morning. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Exactly. I think so. Another driver in terms of farmer adoption, a driver for, for change is in fact challenges. And we're certainly seeing challenges from the grower's perspective, right? We're coming up on probably the seventh year where growers haven't been making money. And the trade war that we're talking about and the impacts it's having on growers in the Midwest is, I think, uh, probably an unfortunate, but, but will probably be a driver towards more adoption or at least looking at what are ways for some of these growers to start diversifying their operations and you know what are some of the tools needed to do that right yeah the adoption conversation is just so fascinating to me another thing that's come up a lot especially this week the week we're recording this indigo was just named number one disruptor by what was it cnbc i'm not i'm not sure whoever does a disruptor list they were like the number one disruptor and so that was all over the news and in social media you know hearing a lot about disruption not just from indigo but but from several sort of new players in the in in the industry you know have we seen anything that you would classify as disruption in the last decade or so well, just speaking very timely, last week we had the Beyond Meat IPO. Mm-hmm. That was also yeah. probably a, a shock for some folks in the industry, certainly the, or, or just a disruptor in terms of a major player coming on the market with an alternative protein. In terms of disruption over the last 10 years, I would say we haven't seen very much. And again, I would put the reason for that being we have some very comfortable industry incumbents that have not faced much outside challenge. And so the impetus for spending the money to be a disruptor and truly innovate on something comes from competition. And we just haven't been seeing that in our space. And so companies like Indigo being out there, to me, are very exciting to potentially drive some of that anticipated and needed disruption. You could probably argue Indigo is making some of the industry incumbents pay attention. One example that I share is Cargill and ADM collaborating on their grain bridge strategy, which is something that we uh, was certainly driven by Indigo coming and playing into the space. I don't think five years ago, anyone would have thought we'd see any kind of collaboration between Cargill and ADM. So that was very interesting. And I think kind of one example of where we're going to start to see some disruption. The other example from my wheelhouse in terms of an exit that's been referenced the last within the five last five years is John Deere's acquisition of Blue River technology. We haven't actually seen it play out as a disruptor to the space. They were still pretty early stage in their tech. So that's probably why we haven't actually seen anything really rolling out commercially. But 
it was sufficient probably of a of enough of a threat for John Deere to say, you know, this we see the direction of the industry going in this way. We're not able to develop this internally, so we're going to acquire acquire the technology. What happens to it now, we've yet to see. Again, it was still pretty early stage. So it wasn't as if that they're it wasn't as if they're squashing the technology at this stage necessarily, but we, we don't yet know if it's actually going to be coming onto the market. But yeah, I think I think your question is spot on. I don't know that we have seen much in the ways of industry disruption, and there is tremendous potential for it, most likely driven by kind of the difficult economics at the moment. Okay, great. Well, I know one thing that I've I've heard you speak about a, a bit is, <clears throat> is regenerative agriculture. And one thing I'm wrestling with on regenerative agriculture is it seems like right now, at least the, the farmers that have gone from more conventional farming systems to more regenerative systems, one of their motivations is to sort of, in their minds, wean themselves off of agribusiness, you know, not have to buy so many inputs, not have to buy quite the investment in equipment, not to be leveraged to the gills. So one thing I'm, I'm curious about, because I do hear agribusinesses, you know, sort of touting regenerative agriculture is like kind of what's the angle there? What, what are the market opportunities if, if more farmers were to move to regenerative systems? Well, so the market opportunities from a production perspective is in theory, and it's, comp- I mean, one thing I don't want to sugarcoat is that a regenerative farming system is, is hard. It requires getting back to more of the basics of farming and not being able to rely necessarily on a lot of the chemical solutions. But in theory, if you could do it right, part of the production opportunity is, in fact, to increase your, your profits, right? So reducing your, your input costs. And depending on what you're producing, potentially getting a premium, but at least securing greater margin for what you're putting out there because you have you have reduced your input costs. What I also see as the important opportunity from a production perspective is business diversification, which is absolutely critical. We're starting to see it. I mean, the trade, what's happening with the trade issues today is just, this is one, so right now, a constraint for the commodity space is what we're seeing with the trade wars. But the general trend for commodity production is a rat race to the bottom. And Brazil is just starting to improve production and potentially put a significant numbers of acres under production, which means this game is just getting started. And viable business strategy would not be to remain only producing corn and soybeans for a commodity market. That's just not good business. And so where I see the other opportunity for regenerative is building in alternative increased crop rotation and trying to find alternative markets for, you know, depending on how you're doing it, a certain percentage of your production every year. So that's to me, the opportunity is first of all, whatever you are growing, doing it more profitably, and then diversifying your business into other, other commodities, other products. Sure. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And as you said, you know, the the pure commoditization is a bit of a, a race to the bottom. Who can who can do it cheaper? Exactly. And where you've seen a lot of the bigger guys, they double down on the commodities, right? So they double down in not necessarily buying acres, of course, is one part of the strategy, but they doubled down on the logistics, right? So they started owning trucks and getting into that space. They doubled down on the storage, but you're still only playing in this commodity rat race. And to mm-hmm. me, that's just very, very risky. And we're seeing that play out right now. 
Yeah, you mentioned Cargill dub- doubling down on pea protein. I'm sure that's in no small part to companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat that are using pea protein as their number one ingredient in, in plant-based foods. Should those of us that are from more of conventional agriculture, animal agriculture specifically, be concerned about the level of disruption in the future of, of animal agriculture? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. I have, I've been speaking on this, actually. And while alternative proteins are coming in to kind of shake up protein space, what I actually see them as is an opportunity for the animal agriculture space to take a step back and look at how they can improve their operations, potentially diversify offerings, and grow their profitability. The alternative protein space is a growing market, but when you look at the total pie, dollars spent on protein, it remains a very small percentage. And the pie is getting bigger because we're seeing more growth in middle-income groups in emerging markets who are starting to consume more protein. And so the animal ag piece of that pie is going to continue to grow. And so where I see the alternative proteins is as a motivator and a stimulant for the animal ag space to get better, Hmm. to, to, to recognize, hey, there's a competitor on the scene. They're not eating our lunch now, but how can we ensure they don't? What are ways that we can get better? What are ways that we can ensure the sustainability of our production systems? What are the ways that we can improve profitability for ranchers who, like row crop growers, have really been suffering? You know, that to me is the opportunity that the, the alternative protein space presents. And I, I pitched this idea at the National Institute for Animal Ag's annual conference in Des Moines. I think I already mentioned that. And I was a little worried about the reception, but folks were, it really resonated. They appreciated very much kind of that lens where, you know, I, I spoke for 30 or 45 minutes and they're like, you are hardly talk about alternative proteins. And I was like, yes, that's by design. To me, it's just a distraction. And what needs to happen is for the industry to take the momentum and just get better. Hmm. I, I think that's so true. I, I I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm just craving some plant protein today. You know, they have other concerns that's leading them to alternative proteins. And, and I think what you highlighted in that presentation, because I watched the video of it, is we need to find out what those are. You know, what what are those drivers to that decision? Because it, it's it's not a natural craving. <laughs> and, and and figure out how can we address those with with animal agriculture. Well, exactly. Or so, and the other point is just to, so even if folks, even if folks exactly started shifting, you know, let's say a percentage of the U.S. population shifted from meatless Mondays, right? Where I think the opportunity is, is to grow the margin for Tuesday through Friday, right? Like how can you improve the offerings to grow the margins for Tuesday through Friday, because what we're also starting to see is a greater willingness to pay. Folks are willing to pay for premium products. So you have that end of the spectrum, and then you have this very large base in the emerging markets that are just getting started in terms of spend spend on animal protein, and how do you serve them with maybe some some more value-based, value-priced solutions or uh, products? Mm-hmm. To me, it's just this tremendous opportunity at the moment. And the the example that I share is in the coffee space and just how the coffee space has become completely decommoditized within, let's say, 30 years time since Starbucks came into the scene and really introduced a premium coffee, that the, the willingness to pay for coffee has grown 
astronomically. It's, it's tremendous. And so to me, that's the opportunity is figuring out how to add more value to what is being produced because we're seeing the willingness to pay for it. Yeah, I think you shared a slide that it was something like the, the, the overall coffee, coffee market has grown almost 4x since Starbucks entered. Is that right? That's right. And, but yeah. the more compelling number is that when Starbucks, it was something, and now I I should share the link to this so that you could share with the audience because I'm not going to remember the sure. exact numbers. But what was far more compelling was that I think it was within a 20-year time, the volume of coffee that was sold at a premium went from 3% to 40%. Those mm. are the numbers that I'm talking about. How do you capture, I mean, when you're talking about that, then you're talking about margins and profitability. And that to me is the opportunity is to shift away from the commodity space and to decommoditize the market and figure out ways to de deliver these high end, delicious protein solutions that we're, we're just starting to see the opportunities in that space. Very interesting. So yeah, I mean, you know, you could draw the parallels between Starbucks, quote unquote, disrupting the coffee market and what's happened there to all proteins, quote unquote, disrupting the the, the protein space and what, what potentially could happen there. Is, am, I, am I following the logic there? Yeah, exactly. And then the important piece yeah. to keep in mind is that Starbucks remains a very small percentage of the total coffee sold. It's, it's, a, huh. it's a very small percentage. So they drove tremendous, exciting change within this market. But they are not, they are still not the majority, you know, they're not the ones that are reaping all of the benefits. It's the players in the space that innovated and moved with them to identify and take advantage of this desire for differentiated product and unique and delicious solutions that, you know, are in theory, there's a lot going on, but like produced in a sustainable manner. And, you know, that you've just seen all this proliferation of differentiation in the coffee space. And it, it wasn't just Starbucks that took advantage. In fact, the vast majority of that shift has gone through a multitude of other players in the space. Yeah, even McDonald's. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, one other thing, and this is this is going to be a rough transition here, which I'm going to become known for because I, sometimes I just like want to get to something else and don't know how to get there. But I, I read in, in, in something you wrote about, uh, and I, in fact, I think what it was is a transcript from a panel you were on, just kind of about world hunger in general, I think was the context and talking about how, you know, we need, we always say we need to grow more food to meet the, the growing population demand, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you brought up a point that I have heard elsewhere. I always have the same question on, so I'm hoping you can help me clear it up, which is, it's, it's not necessarily that we, that we need to be growing more food. There's obviously a distribution and, and economic issue there, but, it, but it's also, you know, providing people with access to, to nutrient-rich or nutrient-dense foods. Can you elaborate more on that and maybe explain kind of what that looks like? Yeah, so maybe first I'll just elaborate on the why. So what we're starting to see is what historically we've always fought against was a lack of, of food, right? And, and that still exists today. There are still folks that do not have access to food, period. But what, what has shifted in the last decades is a shift towards micronutrient deficiencies. So those folks that have food do not have access to the right types of food and are suffering in different ways. And then what you're starting to see in your audience, and, and I mean, we all see it, is a shift towards obesity, which is 
the consumption of too many calories, not too many and not the right types of calories. And that issue, the obesity epidemic actually is growing even more rapidly in the emerging markets. And so what we have now is not an issue with access to calories, it's access to the right types of calories. And again, there are still some that I don't want to downplay because there are also still some that don't have access, period. So that, that is still something. But in terms of the bigger picture issues, it's actually access to the right types of food, which are more nutrient dense foods. And something that frustrates me often, and you know, we had the comment at John Deere, or one of the missions is feeding 50 billion, right? That's just a frustrating perspective to me when you consider that the majority of sales are going towards equipment that supports the production of corn and soybeans, which those are, well, in the U.S., the majority of corn production is in fact going to fuel, right? It's going to ethanol production. And then the majority of the rest is going towards animal feed. And so it's not necessarily true that what, what's being produced today is in fact food for feeding, feeding the growing planet. Um, and I think that the conversation, that that's not an accurate portrayal of what's really needed. And what, what I get excited about in terms of the technology that's coming down the pipeline is some, maybe I'll use a specific example of kind of the, the world that I know historically is in fact the robotic space. So in terms of an industry where we haven't seen much innovation, I would argue agricultural equipment is one of those the tractor is, is kind of is the same as when it was invented it's bigger and badder but in terms of truly being innovated on that hasn't happened and what we're starting to see where robots could potentially play is we'll start to see solutions that are can be used in small shareholder production of all types so from grain crops to vegetables to orchards and then we're getting into more of the nutrient-dense foods, right? And some of these technologies will be scalable both up and down, unlike where we've seen the trend in agricultural equipment, where equipment is being developed for larger and larger operations. It's not that these solutions can be, they're not scalable both directions. And so with some of the new technologies in robotics, like swarm technologies, where you have a multitude of smaller robots that are taking care of some of the more some of the, the on-farm tasks, those are solutions that are scalable up and down. And that to me is very exciting because it isn't lucrative for some of the larger incumbents to be playing in that space because of the operating costs that they have. And we talked about that um, when we started the conversation here. And so some of the, the new technologies coming in the pike will be scalable both up and down. And that's a game changer to, towards supporting both larger and smaller scale operations. And typically it is in fact those smaller scale operations that are producing the, the more nutrient dense food. And w just when we say nutrient dense food, do, do we mean food that doesn't need to be processed? I guess I'm, I'm having trouble wrapping my heads around. I mean, is that the produce aisle in the grocery store? Uh, what, what do we mean when we refer to nutrient dense foods? Yeah. So that's the produce aisle in the grocery store. It is different varieties of grains that aren't necessarily produced for feed. So direct to consumer, so grains that are produced for consumer consumption that typically have been bred for their nutritional content versus, well, not to say that varieties that have been bred for, for livestock, of course, have nutrient components, but it is different. 
And sure. so, so looking at the foods that have been produced and on the gene editing side, so we're also starting to see with the CRISPR technology until now. So what we've seen play out with GMOs is that the focus was on higher value crop, not higher value, but higher volume crops like corn and soybeans. But with CRISPR technology, it's making it much cheaper to do gene editing. And because of that, we might start to see more and interesting solutions coming up for a different, a much greater variety of, of crops, which is very exciting because mm-hmm. we haven't seen much activity in, in other, uh, other areas. And that's because it used to be so expensive to develop sort of a, a genetically engineered product that you have to you have to go for the big the big whale that you know the big products. But now maybe as the as the cost and the accessibility has has become you know well more accessible, they they can target some more niche products. Is that right? That's exactly right. Huh. Cool. Well, yeah. I think you you just answered my next question, but but maybe I'll ask for more ideas. What what other disruption do you think we should expect? to see, you know, obviously predicting black swans by definition is impossible, but just in your opinion, where else do you think the agriculture industry is ripe for disruption in the coming decades? So we hit on one, the robotics. I think mm-hmm. that's going to be a game changer on with gene editing, where we're going to see more introduction of crops that will better serve a, a greater multitude of crops. And those are two that I usually get very excited about. Oh, the other side would be functioning. We haven't seen this yet, but if we can start to get some functioning IoT systems. So we've seen a lot of sensors and we haven't yet really been able to close the loop and make them functioning support and value add to the farm. But I'm excited about some new so, and part of the constraint there in the U.S. and across the globe is connectivity. So that's been a big constraint, IoT systems, to actually be delivering return the value add for producers. So if you have those sensors in the field, are you getting the information in a timely manner to actually be making decisions, on-farm decisions, about production practices? And con- connectivity has been a big constraint. And we're starting to see some interesting solutions that might be able to help solve some of the connectivity issues. So some is like swarm satellites, like mini satellites that could help with connectivity. We're starting to see some solutions on the ground solutions using radio waves, for example, to help facilitate and and get around the lack of connectivity. So I don't know which one will solve the issues, but actually getting those sensors in place and having them add value to farmers will be a really important input to, sh- to, be, to allow a shift towards the more complicated regenerative farming systems that I think we need to get to both from an environmental perspective, but also from a farmer profitability perspective. So those would be the three that I get excited about, robotics, gene editing, and functioning IoT systems. Great. Well, I, I think you probably have, hopefully you have some potential, you know, prospective clients for, for your consulting business listening. How can they get a hold of you if they'd like to follow up on anything you mentioned? Oh, thank you. Yes. So LinkedIn is the best way. So you can find me either through Banyan Innovation Group or through just my personal page. So Renee Vasilos. Okay. And Banyan is B-A-N-Y-A-N, just like it sounds? Yes, that's right. B-A-N-Y-A-N. Okay. And thank you, Tim. I wanted to say your work is very important to the space and you're having these conversations and putting this information out there is a real value add. So thank you for doing this. I appreciate that. Thank you. 
Thank you so much to Renee for being on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed getting asked those questions, and I hope that brought up some questions on your end, or maybe there are some questions you've been wrestling with when it comes to ag tech or ag innovation or some of the themes we were talking about on the show. We haven't used the speak pipe feature in a while or haven't announced it, but it's still out there. If you'd like to ask one of those questions, go to speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K. P-I-P-E dot com. So speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. Leave me a voicemail with your question. I will make sure I find the ideal guest, maybe Renee or maybe someone else to answer whatever burning question you have about the content discussed on the show. Would love for you to be a part of it in that way. It's now time for a new mini segment that if you were listening last week, you heard the first episode of, and it's time for the second one. I'm calling it Five Minute Farmer. Don't clock me on the five minutes. I'm going to try to get as close as I possibly can. But this is where we bring on a farm enterprise, a farmer, a production agriculturist uh, who's also an entrepreneur in trying to go direct to consumer. I think there's some interesting lessons to be learned in addition to just some great stories with some of these farmers who are are trying to figure out how do we scale this direct-to-consumer model, which when you think about it, if, if there are new technological advancements that allow us to scale a model like that, that could really be disruptive. Anyway, we have on our five-minute farmer segment today, Hannah Esch, who is the founder of Oak Barn Beef. This is another college student. It's just by chance that the first two, Gavin and Hannah, are both in college. I got super excited when I talked to them both because how cool is this? In college, trying to create a business in one of the most challenging industries in the world, uh, which is agriculture, but also trying to think outside of the box when it comes to marketing. Hannah was the Nebraska uh, beef ambassador where she traveled the state and was surprised to find that even in Nebraska, there's a huge gap between consumer knowledge and producer knowledge and just a misunderstanding between the two. And she got very interested at that time in how could I start to bridge that gap potentially through a direct-to-consumer business. And here's where it gets really interesting because people talk back about millennials, but here's what they'll do. When they're on fire about something, they'll do whatever it takes to find the information online and reach out to learn more, which is exactly what Hannah did. So when I first decided I wanted to own this business, I started researching companies all over the United States to see how they did it, what I can learn from them, etc. And when I came across Five Mary's Farms, which is a direct-to-consumer meat company out of Northern California, I realized that they would be the best to learn from. And even though they didn't offer an internship, I wrote them a letter and asked if I could be their intern for the summer. And surprisingly, they accepted me and I moved out to Northern California last summer and they taught me the ins and outs of a farm to table operation, shipping a perishable product and social media marketing. And there's no way I would be anywhere close to where I am today without them. Now, Hannah comes from a beef production background. Her family has raised cattle for quite some time and primarily marketed them through traditional channels. So I was curious about what difference, if any, this internship with Five Marys made on her operation. So like a lot of ranchers do, we were selling whole beefs and half beefs on the side for a while, but I'll go... When I returned home from my internship this summer, we pivoted to how we operate now. So e-commerce based, online shipments, that kind of stuff. And when I returned home in August, I launched our first ever weekly special, which was also my 21st birthday sale. So that was kind of fun to do that. And 
I can't believe how many orders we got from that. And it was maybe one of the most exciting moments in my life to be able to go through the process and actually fulfill and take all that I had learned from this summer and put it into play. Now, one big skepticism I often hear about direct-to-consumer agriculture is that if you don't live right next to the consumer, the freight costs will kill you. Well, like any good entrepreneur, Hannah is not letting that challenge stop her from reaching her customers. Yeah, we can ship anywhere in the United States. We have broken it down through regions. So for certain regions, for example, the surrounding states of Nebraska, it's $25 to ship a package and the coast is 65. However, within the next month, I think we're going to be able to lower that cost for the coast. Working on some research right now to make that possible. If they're making a large purchase, then that shipping price is totally worth it for them. So where did Hannah get the grit and determination and the ability to think outside the box to try to launch a business from scratch and reach customers all over the U.S. Well, in addition to growing up in agriculture, Hannah goes to the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, where she studies both animal science, but also is a part of the Angler School for Entrepreneurship. And she's been able to blend all of her studies in science, entrepreneurship, and of course, growing up farming into this business in some really cool ways. Yeah, so all of our cattle are born at Esh Cattle Company, which is my family farm. And then shortly after that, we send in a small DNA sample from every calf to a local DNA testing lab in Lincoln, Nebraska. And although the animal science major in me geeks out about this every time, it actually plays a huge importance in our selection process. But this DNA can tell us all kinds of carcass traits. So it tells us their tenderness gene, marbling gene, ribeye area, and thousands more. And that helps us select the highest quality animals from the beginning. And so through that selection and a phenotypical evaluation, then Oak Barn Beef purchases the cattle from Esh Cattle Company and they're transitioned to a corn-fed diet, which they stay which until they reach market weight, which is approximately 1,350 pounds. And then we transport them to a USDA-inspected locker where they are slaughtered, dry-aged, fabricated, and packaged. And then after those, that process is done, we bring the beef back to Oak Barn Beef and it is marketed online. And then during the checkout process, customers can choose to have the box shipped directly from our farm to their doorstep or for local orders. We have pickup locations in Lincoln, Omaha, and Unadilla twice a month. So whether you are in Nebraska and go, can go to one of those pickup stations or elsewhere in the country, all of you, if you're in the U.S., can go to oakbarnbeef.com. That's O-A-K-B-A-R-N-B-E-E-F.com. I think I got the spelling right there, but it's oakbarnbeef.com. And you can buy anything from individual cuts to beef bundles to a subscription box that will arrive at your door in a normal interval um, with some meat inside of it for you. Fantastic story here. I love hearing about somebody who is learning in college, learning the science, learning the business, and applying it in a way that's direct to consumer. Would love for you to support Hannah at oakbarnbeef.com.
Well, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I know these episodes have gotten a little bit longer as of late, partially because I, I love these little five-minute farmer segments, but I want your feedback on them. If they're worth your extra five, six, seven, eight minutes to stay on the podcast and you're listening all the way to this point, I would love to hear from you. At Tim Hamrich on Twitter, Tim at agrad.com. You can find me on any of the social platforms. I don't take your attention lightly. I really do appreciate the fact that you want content like this, and I want to deliver it in a digestible format. So thanks so much and we'll be back next week. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Next week.